Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on David Gorman. David is co-founder of 1021 Creative, a content curation and consulting agency whose clients include Amazon, Apple Music, and YouTube. Like me, David's professional life has been somewhat defined by the personal computer and internet revolutions. Helping artists, brands, and fans make sense of this new world is what brought us to each other's doorsteps. Full disclosure on this one, I've known David for the better part of 20 years. We've worked on multiple award-winning projects together and have spent countless hours arguing, laughing, or just plain talking about music. This conversation is a bit of a window into all of that, and I hope you enjoy. It's good to see you, and uh, thank you for making time to do this. I've been chasing you for a while, and I finally fucking ran you down. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have on Mike for a while, so hopefully it'll be a good one for you. Considering the complete lack of preparation, I hope it's a good one for you. Oh, you've spent your life preparing. All right, so let's level set for people. Um, where are you from? Uh, Detroit, originally. So, and uh, talk about growing up in Detroit. I need to hear some Detroit anecdotes. Come on. <laughs> Um, well, like many in Detroit, it started in Detroit and then, you know, eventually bled to the suburbs. Um, but yeah, born there, eventually moved out to Southfield, which is a, you know, the border of Detroit, uh, as made famous in eight mile, I guess eight miles, the border, but then found myself drifting back into the city all the time, whether it was for music, for food, but there was always an excuse to go back in kind of, you know, worry the hell out of my mom uh, that we would just kind of disappear into the city until all hours. And then, um, you know, that was all through high school. You know, once I had a car, um, there were some great clubs you could still go to. I I, um, was from the time of my early, early teens up till now, a soul music obsessive. And there were still clubs in Detroit where you could go and I mean, technically they were blues clubs, but blues had kind of morphed into soul music anyway by the you know late 70s and 80s. And certainly by the time I was I was going out to see it. So, you know, it was it was blues clubs, but it was that sort of like blues in the vein of Johnny Taylor and that, that sort of like soul blues thing. Mm-hmm. That, Malico Records and companies like that were trading in and, you know, what Bobby Bland was doing at that point in his career. Um, and uh, when I graduated, my uh, I went into an art school that's downtown. And um, I was actually there to learn how to design cars, uh, believe it or not. But that had me going downtown on a daily basis for school. And the art school was um, pretty close to the original Motown house, oh, wow. Grand Boulevard. And as again, a soul music and Motown obsessive, I just started hanging out there. Um, they, you know, it was open 
it's a it's a much more beautiful and robust museum now than it was uh, in the late eighties. Yeah, uh, it yeah. was pretty much just the house back then, and it was open for tours and stuff. But you walked in the front door, and it was not a museum setting. It was the old couch and desk, and most of the people that were working there were still family members of the Gordies who didn't move to L.A. when Motown moved to L.A. And I just wanted to kind of hang out there and sit in the studio and breathe the air and listen to people tell stories. Um, and I became close with uh, Barry's sister, Esther, um, who was an incredible woman and a kind of great mentor. And, um, and some of the other folks that, you know, worked there, both kids like me that just wanted to hang out there and be part of it and do whatever, you know, I, I kind of acted as a handyman or like a paint, you know, stuff needed to be repainted or cleaned up or run and pick up lunch for people, whatever. Well, you know, wasn't getting paid. It was just there. But it let me hang out and, and again, hear stories. And then I got to meet people, you know, because anytime somebody was in town who was signed to the label back in the day, of course, they would swing by the house to say hello to Esther or whomever. So, you know, that's how I got to meet Stevie Wonder. That's how I got to meet Barry. That's how I got to meet members of the Funk Brothers that would bring their families there, you know, to show them what dad used to do. Um, and um, that was probably the, the best part of, you know, the time I spent in Detroit was that, you know, that period when, you know, it was just about hanging out there. And um, and then the other, the other thing that kept me bounced around the city was trying to find records, you know, like, again, yeah, like yeah. this was being a bit of a, again, like a, a soul music obsessive. And there were certain, you know, this was like the very beginnings of the CD boom. So stuff was starting to get reissued, but not the deep stuff, you know, so it was real easy for you to get, you know, most of, not all of, but most of like Marvin Gaye's records or the Four top stuff, they'd reissue that on CD and all the greatest hits anthologies. But if you were trying to track down let's say an early 45 of Edwin stars that didn't exist on, you know, CD at that time. So I was just bouncing to any record store I could find, um, to dig through, you know, the stacks that they had sitting in the back. And that was an education too, you know, just the people that you met and more importantly, the music, um, you know, my, my, 45 collection that I amassed at that point was, you know, again, like pre eBay, pre Discogs. When you're hunting in the back of an old record store, and there were some great, you know, Coachman's Records and Dearborn Music, all these incredible record stores where you just show up. And again, like there wasn't really competition in, in record collecting in Detroit then the way that. You know, if you're a record collector in L.A. or New York and like, you know, you're competing with like people flying in from the U.K. and Japan and whatever, and everything's picked through and overpriced, you know, with Detroit, if you're looking for 45s, it was more or less like here's the corner of the store where all the 45s are stacked. <laughs> and you could just sit back there with like, you know, a couple of the stores would have those. You know, those uh, Califone record players, the ones that um, we had in, in libraries and elementary schools and stuff. 
you know, those and a crappy pair of headphones and sit back there for hours. You end up talking to the the people that work there and, you know, I'm looking for this. Well, have you heard this then? And it was that real interaction. But there was also just the joy of going through a stack of records you'd never heard. Um, there was one one shop that used to buy records from like old jukebox distributors. So like after mm-hmm. they'd had their, their time in the bars, they would just end up in boxes here. And it was all, you know, like local Detroit, Chicago, you know, R&B and soul records. And what was so cool about it was when I was just starting out obsessing over that music, again, like I hadn't gotten collectory about it yet. Like I didn't have any sense of what records were rare and which ones were worth something or, you know, like there were a handful of artists that I had heard stuff by and really wanted to hear more by. So I'd go digging for those. And, you know, there's a, a DJ, legendary old school Detroit DJ, frantic Ernie Durham, who's credited with being the guy that broke Motown. Like he was the first one to play Motown records. Called frantic Ernie Durham apparently because he had a radio show in Detroit and then two hours later had another radio show at a station in Flint and he would like leave one and just drive as fast as he could to make the other one. He got that nickname, but he, he eventually got a radio show um, on the weekends at our local public radio station. He would play all this amazing stuff that, you know, was not the sort of tired oldies that you'd hear. So I would always hear stuff from him and like, Oh God, I got to track that down now. But I would just sit in the back of these stores and like these stacks of records and drop them on this, crappy record player and play 15 or 30 seconds of it if it was great i would put it in the stack that i was buying and if it wasn't i would leave it behind and so i got to discover the music not through oh this is valuable or this is good or these are the records you need to have but it was like this is just a great record and so i got turned on to all these artists you know fairly obscure local artists that i wouldn't have heard except in that scenario nobody was playing the stuff on the radio nobody was like regurgitating it back as nostalgia there were in the early 90s you know some bootleg uk and japanese cds that you could get that was like you know these collections of obscure you know soul or whatever that some of these guys would end up on you know that was incredible and and then you know we had sort of the local detroit music scene which had a great mix of Again, like whether it was local blues and soul stuff or like some of the, you know, kind of rock that I was into at the time. So, you know, it was cool to be able to go see Marshall Crenshaw or, you know, folks like that. Um, and Detroit was one of those those cities there where you had like that real local, like there were bands that if you listen to Detroit rock radio, you assume that they were like massive Rolling Stones level success stories. And then as soon as you left Detroit, you realize no one heard of them but you and the other idiots in Detroit. That's how I grew up thinking about Southside Johnny and NRBQ, you know, up on the East Coast, like those guys were, you know, Max Creek, like those, those guys, they played all the fucking time everywhere. And you would think they were, you know, the shit. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, the Rockets were one of those bands in Detroit, you know, like one of those like rock bands that you just thought, you know, they were selling out all over the world. And then you realize like, no, like when they got to Detroit, they played, you know, places that were 10 times larger than 
than anywhere else. Um, you know, Jay Giles was massive there, and you know, we just uh, and then again, like these, even like local. There's a band called Bittersweet Alley that was like never broke outside of Detroit, but they had two or three songs that are like some of the best rock records you'll ever hear. And if you lived in Detroit, you would think again these are these are massive this band's gonna blow up and turns out they only made one album and that was it but man like those summer concert series on the detroit river they headlined them every year and packed people in and you you would think that you know they were going to go on to be aerosmith or something and yeah how did uh how did your people end up in detroit that's a good question detroit has um and i'm, I'm going to fumble my way through this because uh, I've just started dabbling on Ancestry.com. <laughs> um, you know, Detroit has a pretty large population of Jewish immigrants, and we are of that. Um, my mother's side mostly, you know, came from Germany and Russia. Um, my dad actually was Canadian, uh, so his, his family moved from Toronto down to Detroit same thing growing up we spent a lot of time up in canada a lot of time going back and forth and um as a delinquent teenager my friends and i would spend a lot of time in windsor because they had a lower drinking age yeah yeah it not only legal sooner to drink there but also easier to fake it before you were old enough to drink in canada oh those naive canadians <laughs> was your dad's side of the family jewish as well yes I have a specific reason for asking because you, you, okay. Mother, yes, his birth father, no. Gotcha. I, um, I started dabbling in ancestry as well. And I learned that, um, my, my, my sort of DNA profile came back something like 28% Eastern European Jew. And when I dug into it, it was through the migration in Southern Canada. So around, uh, like the South end of Quebec, there was a pocket and, you know, Montreal is a fairly large Jewish population, but my family came in through Canada into Vermont and then down into New England. But it looks like I have no connection to that part of the family or to the lore. But if you just kind of piece it all together, reverse engineer it, it looks like they were definitely trying to assimilate and pass and became mm -hmm. Christian and definitely anglicized whatever the name was before that. But it's really interesting to to wonder how you know, what they fled or what the, what made them sort of completely shed that identity, you know, because it's clear that there's, you know, in my, in, in the side of my family it's from, there's no, there was never any lore about it or anything like that. It's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, what, what they fled is probably pretty easy to figure out, but the <laughs> motivation to sort of abandon the identity is interesting because I think, I mean, you and I probably already, would know this just from even the music lore that we read, you know, that there were loads of of every ethnicity that did their best to sort of shed whatever ethnic baggage, you know, like all of the singers and producers and writers who like, you know, have these very common sort of Anglo sounding names. And then you realize like, oh no, his, his real name was Stanley Eisen, not Paul Stanley. <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, you know, my family wasn't particularly religious, but they, they all still overtly identified as Jewish. And, you know, it was definitely the, 
the subculture, you know, within Detroit. And again, like Detroit had a pretty, still has, you know, a pretty large and vibrant community. And I think like most of the Jewish immigrations, it was, you know, whoever was out to kill them that decade, whether it was, you know, yeah. the Russians or the Germans or, you know, their neighbors. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I have two questions about soul music for you, or at least two, but the, the first two that were top of mind for me is how, the how and why of soul music for you in terms of becoming an obsessive. Um, mm-hmm. But even before that, whether it's factual or whether it's your opinion, is soul music basically is the lineage that it's urbanized blues? Is that essentially what we're talking about? As, 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 as musicians migrated north, the blues became more urban and that was the beginning of soul or am I getting that lineage wrong? I think it's, it's more of a hybrid than that. So there's, and then there's, God, we could, we could go so deep on this. Um, so there's like different definitions of like what qualify, like what was the first soul record, like what qualifies something as soul music. Most commonly people err towards the side of not so much that it was urbanized blues, but more that it was secularized gospel. In, in a lot of ways, what defines soul music is, is the singing. Mm-hmm. So that style that we consider like a soul music singer in the classic sense, and that like, you know, from the 60s, there, there aren't a lot of people in mainstream R&B that, that I think you would call a soul singer in the traditional sense that, that the vocal styles evolved. Um, although there are people like, you know, the Charles Bradleys and the Sharon Jones that are in that pocket, but they're more revivalists, right? But, you know, when you when you hear like a classic soul singer, it's it really has a lot to do with the vocal style that used to define the gospel quartets. So, you know, it's that that intensity and that um, if you go back and listen to, you know, records by the Blind Boys, you know, again, like from the 50s and the Soul Stirrers and, um, you know, even going into like James Cleveland and singers like that, you know, it's it's that's the traditional journey, right? Aretha learns to sing in the church. She blends it with jazz and blues and then brings it into, you know, soul music or when Ray Charles, you know, records Hallelujah, I Love Her So, or I Got a Woman, where he's effectively taking a gospel song and writing, you know, secular lyrics to it, or Sam Cooke, you know, going from his career in the Soul Stirs, but bringing most of his vocal style, although he toned it down a little for pop, but bringing it into that secular context. But there's also another element to it, which is the sort of element of racial integration, that most soul music is a combination of, again, that like very church, you know, like gospel that gets secularized, but also there's really strong elements of country music. There's really, you know, both in terms of the storytelling and the songwriting, but a lot of the the singers that, you know, define that sort of classic 60s soul era and this is, I'm mostly talking about in the South, Percy Sledge, Solomon Burke, they called themselves country singers. Yeah. You know, I, I got to meet both of them and interviewed them both pretty extensively. And without me prompting it or suggesting it, you know, they both told stories of, you know, they, they the artists that they name checked that they idolized, you know, were people like Hank Snow 
<laughs> you know that that's you know where they got their style from and that um, they kind of saw themselves in that mold I mean they still obviously were R&B you know soul and that's what they did and they, they embraced it and recognized it but when they talked about the music they grew up on and the singers that you know that they were emulating a lot of the more country singers and you know when you talk about stacks and you know obviously steve cropper was a massive part of that sound and you know he you listen to his playing like he's kind of a hillbilly guitar picker and muscle shoals those were all kind of redneck country guys you know laying down that music and so i think there's a piece of it that that is that you know, you, you can't separate it from that moment in civil rights when it became okay and acceptable and, and sort of radical in the South for, you know, these interracial bands and acts to come together. And I think, you know, if you go back and listen to a lot of, again, like those Percy Sledge records, if you replaced him with a different singer, it would be a country record. But because it's Percy in front of that band, it's a soul record because of the way he sings and, and you know what he adds to it detroit and chicago stuff had almost none of that country influence and you know i think that was sort of the modernizing again like heavy gospel element you couldn't avoid it in the arrangements and the singing but also brought i think more electric blues into it for sure is that the urbanization element as the as the migration north happened um whether it was the the wrong word would be, I guess, a sophistication, but there was an urbanization, basically people, people left the country behind and moved into the cities and that's reflected. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, certainly again, like even a lot of the Motown artists, you know, themselves grew up in the South and eventually ended up in Detroit. And, you know, you know certainly that was the case with like David Ruffin and Jimmy Ruffin, you know, they were, they were Southern, Eddie Kendricks. Um, uh, but again, like some of them, the Four Tops were a jazz group before they came to Motown. You know, they were singing in supper clubs um, and Motown sort of drew that like intense soul out of Levi Stubbs that if you listen to some of their earliest stuff and some of the unreleased stuff that came out, you know, when Motown started doing these incredible reissues, you know, they had like, early recordings of the four tops where it's like you really hear that side of them of like more of that like supper club urbanized um uh adult pop sensibility and you listen to that and you're like man that's nothing like the intensity of like seven rooms of gloom but there, there was a lot of that at motown too like always that sense of there was this like hard-edged soul that motown did but there was also this side of them, virtually every Motown artist you can think of, if you dig into their discography, you'll find, if not entire albums, certainly these songs they cut that were just these really overt attempts. And I don't want to say pop music. I'm t- like talking like adult Copacabana standards, like the squarest of the square in the, you know, in the mid sixties, you know, to hear, you know, Marvin Gaye doing um, Quiet Nights of Quiet Stars, you know, and, um, you know, uh, the Supremes, you know, did that stuff. All that. Like, there was this, like, element where it's like, 
getting the, you know, sound of young America is one thing, but what about their parents? And, you know, how do we get to, to the squares that are buying movie soundtracks and pop vocal records? Uh, and I think that tended to ding Motown's reputation a bit. And I always used to find it was so weird. There was always a sort of like record collector. Well, those, you know, those debates that no one gives a shit about except record collectors, right? Like guys like you and I get in these like weird arguments that like actual people who are just normal and listen to music that they enjoy don't even realize that there's a debate going on. But, you know, whenever you kind of read this like Stax versus Motown and which one's more authentic and which one's pop and which one's R&B and I always found that to be such a weird argument because Motown made soul music harder than anyone. But again, it was like offset at times by on the same album that would have some of the most intense soul music you would also encounter okay now they have to sing old man river and they have was to that shit, was that stuff worked as singles to a different audience like was that was that just a commercial calculation it was a commercial calculation in a, in a couple of things i mean the, the temptations kind of at the peak you know like when they were having r&b hits right and left recorded the in a mellow mood album which is all you know these standards and show tunes and stuff and with the exception of their voices, which they, you know, were as, as intense as always, the arrangements were, yeah, these like kind of like, it's not like they did them in like a Motown soul style. The arrangements were kind of square and restrained and very string heavy. And I know that record was specifically like a market manipulation of like, hey, we've got to show this other side of them. And, you know, it was the goal of almost every soul artist, you know, certainly in that like, early to mid 60s the dream was to play the copacabana and get accepted by that supper club crowd right i mean marvin did it sam cook did it um the supremes did it like it, it was that that was i mean sam cook like he, the first time he did it you know the story is that he kind of tanked there and it was so important to him to succeed there that you know he worked it and worked it and worked it and it's finally ready to go back again and, and nail it and you know the, like people have said that he's kind of obsessed with conquering that room because it was just held up as your mark of legitimacy mm. that like man if, if you can get that crowd that sort of moneyed white supper club crowd you're there and, and in Detroit there was the supper club um, it's the rooster tail I think and that was kind of Detroit's mini version of it um, but it was, it was sort of this, you know, we look back at it now and it's like, oh my God, why would you do that? But at the time that was the, the mark of like, you'd made it, man. Like you're accepted as a legitimate artist and yeah, it probably seemed like a better path to longevity back then than, than following your rock and roll acts. I mean, I think at that point you're probably better off trying to follow in Sinatra and the Rat Pack's footsteps than you were in, you know, the Rolling Stones at that point. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly before the rock audience really embraced R&B, um, and that. And before any rock act really had legs, you know, shown that that it, that they could last more than three to five years. Yeah, I, mean, I, I just finished reading um, the book by Alan Leeds. Do you know who he is? I do, yeah. But just yeah. give a look, give a give a second or two, just so folks know. Um, 
So uh, Alan Leeds was uh, James Brown's tour manager, um, kind of at that, you know, that peak from like the mid '60s to early '70s. So he was there in the transition from like classic James into like hard funk James when he was playing with Bootsy and Catfish Collins and all that. Insanity. And his book is really enlightening, fabulous, and it's funny and it's brilliant. And, you know, he, I could listen to him tell stories for days, but a part of the book that was really eye-opening for me is, is really getting that account of what the, the life of a touring R&B act at that time was. To your point, like, when you're talking in the mid-60s, like, touring was was work. This is the way that these books are like, it's just work. You're you're going like this is how you're making your money, and you're just playing night after night after night. If you're not playing live, you're not working. And the record sales were just there to get you good bookings, and it could drop at any moment. And so yeah, the idea of like these these big shows where you play to tens of thousands of people for two hours, and you can take three or four nights off. That's kind of the modern era that these these folks weren't playing in. So yeah, I mean, being being able to do like a couple of mellow nights at a place like the Copa, it's probably a lot more appealing than like playing at some, you know, high school cafeteria in Alabama, finishing the show, getting into a bus and driving a hundred miles to the next makeshift stage, and hoping you get paid for that. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it sounds grueling. Yeah, a couple of chill 50-minute sets a night doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it, it, I mean, you, you probably know this better than me, but I think it, it was it was really the Stones that that sort of elevated touring to to the level that that we know it as, right? Like, so like the '72 tour was like the first one. Yeah, I think there's a confluence of things there. I think I think what really happened on the presentation side on the performance side was like the san francisco bands breaking that model of like you come out play the hits for a 50 minute set and go away i think even some of the early airplane shows were much more like presentational and it was really like once you get into 66 or so the bands start playing longer they break away from having a you know just coming out playing a bunch of three or four minute songs probably the velvet underground doing the same thing in new york um, and I think it took a few years for that really to change the presentation of a rock concert. But yeah, I mean, the Stones, you know, their first really big modern era looking tour would have been the 69 tour. And that was still two two sets a night, you know, hour long shows twice a night. Um, but yeah, the 72 tours when they when it all came together in terms of like the new rock and roll presentation, a longer format, um, one show a night. Um, giant stadiums that's right yeah. stadiums um in and out of in and out of cities not not you know not multiple shows um traveling with a sound system um yeah. I mean, bringing the whole that... package of the opening act like not relying on the local promoter to to touch the show at all it was we're going to come in and we're going to bring our whole presentation you know yeah I mean, one, one of the things in the in the, the leads book that also was reinforced. And I kind of knew this from hearing old live recordings and stuff, but you know, that, that idea that like the headliner of the show was maybe playing 25 minutes. Yeah. There'd be like 10 acts on the bill and the acts lower down would come out and play like 
both sides of their hit single, a cover, and then they were gone. And then the headliner gets like maybe the full 30 minutes. And, you know, when you, when you have like these old live records, you know, James Brown at the Apollo or, you know, Sam at the Harlem Square Club or whatever. And it's like, you know, I, I remember getting those records for the first time and having grown up in the era of these much longer shows. I remember when I first heard those records, I was like, okay, but like, where's the other hour of this show? I want to hear that. Like, and then learning later on, like, no, this was the whole thing. This was yeah, it. it's not like it was the Almond Brothers at the Fillmore East where there was like three more hours of the show. <laughs> it's like, no. Sam at the Harlem Square Club is like, it's it's from the moment they introduced him to the moment he left and then showed up an hour later and did it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's hysterical. Um, all right, so take me quickly from uh thinking you're going to be designing cars to uh designing album packaging like what the what the fuck happened there uh it's actually a, a much longer road um so uh I was, did you design cars i mean not professionally i i, okay. I went to a college that was dedicated to it it was kind of my passion I, and i still um i know you're a car guy yeah you know this is this is what, you know, things look like when I'm sitting on a call doodling to myself. I, you know, it's still there. I'm still a little bit of a geek there. But I grew up doing that and found out that you could do that for a living. And so there was this college in Detroit that's one of the, you know, one of the places that you go to learn to do it. And I got burnt out pretty quickly. You know, I, I was drawing cars all the time. It was an art school and that's what I was doing and kind of realized that, you know, the people that end up doing this professionally are, have a lot deeper commitment than I do. So after a year, I transferred to the University of Michigan. I stayed in a design program, but wanted to study other things. And so um, focused on industrial design, certainly, but learned other disciplines and, you know, but also was able to you know, study literature, African-American art history, things like that. Like, and then a little bit into that, I was always, I was a music obsessive through this whole thing, of course, you know, that, that never stopped. Um, and uh, at some point, um, one of the record stores uh, in Ann Arbor that I went to probably daily, um, manager's store, suggested I throw my hat in the ring for this Sony Music college rep program thing, where it's basically an internship where you act as a marketing rep for the bands that, you know, they were working to the college markets. It was mostly, you know, alternative stuff. And she introduced me to the person who's a marketing manager for that region, who's still one of my closest friends to this day. And um, that was like the wait seat. So can get a job doing this that's awesome and so i took the job and mostly uh, as i was saying it's mostly alternative music and some of it i loved and i you know like we got got to work the first rage against the machine record it was fantastic it was like that was one of the records that, that totally changed my life and seeing them live for the first time i'd never seen anything like that before but a lot of the records we had to work it just wasn't my thing you know like i was again like i was I wasn't the music that I was listening to, uh, so 
you know, Legacy would put out an Earth, Wind, and Fire set, and I'd be all about that, but we weren't working that to the college market at the time. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so, uh, you know, I, I got this internship, um, realized that, wow, you can, you can have a job in music, and my attention went there. And, um, uh, and that sort of got me into the music business as far as, you know, what that meant for working on music packaging, you know, my first real full-time job in the music business after the Sony internship was getting hired by Rhino. Um, and probably don't need to tell you why that was the label that I needed to work for and wanted to work for, but yeah, it's like doing your postgraduate work, right? So, so yeah, so Rhino was putting out all this amazing stuff when I was at the record store and hammered them with resumes. Any anytime I saw someone's name on the back of a package, I'd just send a resume to that name. And um, eventually they all got stacked on the desk of the head of marketing. He called me and you know, told me politely, hey, if you're ever in Los Angeles and you know, happy to sit down and talk to you. So I borrowed some money and flew out and told him, hey, I'm just so happens when be in LA, you know, in three weeks. Or whatever. <laughs> uh, so I'm down in know, the parking up, lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You should ask. Uh, <laughs> your house is beautiful. When are you going to be home? Um, no, so so I uh, ended up getting the job, and it was not to do anything to do with packaging. Um, it was really uh, a marketing gig, a uh, creative marketing gig, because. You know, they had just done this huge expansion. They, you know, inked their deal with Atlantic and they were growing. And there was a concern among the owners of the label that they might lose their sort of creative edge. And wouldn't it be cool if we just hired someone to come up with wacky creative marketing ideas, you know, to keep us doing fun stuff. That was my original job. And that morphed into being the person that wrote and designed their advertising and then radio spots and TV spots. And then... Part of the Stan Cornine of uh, Rhino. In a sense, yeah. And and he was definitely kind of a hero and someone who, whose style I aped many, many times. (laughs) Um, But it, uh, part of my, my, part of my resume when I applied to Rhino was I had taken it upon myself to come up with a concept for a compilation, curate it, uh, and design a cover for it and a marketing plan just as sort of like a, you know, spec piece. And uh, their head of A&R was like, oh, this uh, Gary Stewart, who, you know, again, became a dear friend and mentor, um, uh, you know, right up, right up until he died a couple of years ago. Um, he thought it was a cool idea. I was like, let's do it. Um, I didn't do the cover, although the drawing that I did was given to a, a real artist, uh, and he did his interpretation of it, which was much better. But one thing led to another, you know, I, I eventually started digging into it, having more of a hand in some of the packaging. Uh, I was allowed to start producing records there, um, compilations and such. And um, yeah, one thing sort of led to another. And one of the compilations that I produced and, and worked on as an art director ended up getting a Grammy for art direction. And I think that was when it was like, oh, I could do album packaging now. It wasn't really until after I left Rhino and subsequently Warner Music and started my own agency that I 
started designing packages on my own as opposed to just sticking my nose in the work of you know rhinos existing designers and art directors who are all amazing and i sort of feel somewhat bad for just shoving myself into their work and you know inserting myself into amazing stuff they're already doing but it it did lead to me being able to start doing stuff on my own and yeah you know, designing my own packages and um uh, and yeah went from there that's interesting i didn't realize that that was that sort of the full transition took that long um or that you that yeah i guess that that you sort of came to make the full transition um that much later um i think i had a misconception about what you were doing at rhino um although yeah, it does sound like you you did a little bit of everything on the creative side whether it was a and ring or um but the the a and ring and the the occasional liner note writing or or you know the forays and uh you know packaging and things like that at rhino were things that I was allowed to do as opposed to things that my job required me to do. So again, yeah, what were you supposed to be doing? What was your business card? Uh, my business card was creative czar and that was <laughs> being um, the brand in a sense. Uh, so my job was, you know, writing and designing the ads um, uh, or overseeing, you know, if we had an outside agency or designer overseeing that or, you know, writing, producing the TV spots and um, finding ways to just keep enhancing the brand and keep perpetuating the brand. You know, Rhino was one of the last record labels, I think, to have a brand, you know, to be yeah. a brand that people paid yeah. attention to. And so that was amazing, you know, it got to be sarcastic and funny and, you know, it was, the, and that was really most of my job was, you know, the brand work and these other things were just things that, you know, like I said, I was, I was, they, they tolerated me and allowed me to do it. And, and some even encouraged me to, to do these other things, but they weren't really what I did. And I wasn't hired to do those kinds of things until I started my own shop um, after leaving Warner music. And yeah, then like, then I actually got to, to roll up my sleeves and work directly with the artists or the labels to, you know, to develop packages, covers, whatever. And what did you do that? Um, what did you do to annoy Wilson Pickett? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so when, uh, when I was at Rhino, um, there were a handful of records that, that I really desperately wanted to see reissued. One of them was Wilson Pickett's I'm in Love album, um, which I was obsessed with that record. It's kind of the collaboration, the main collaboration between Wilson Pickett and Bobby Womack, who's one of my favorite artists anyway. And, you know, it had never been on CD before. And so I... Um, worked on it and I had arranged to interview him, you know, cause we really wanted this thing to be done right. So um, I was able to meet up with him before a show he was playing in LA. And uh, it was across the street from the House of Blues, the, the is it Rock and Roll Hilton, is that the hotel? Um, oh, the, uh, the Riot House? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I was invited up to his suite and had, you know, I'd ask him some questions about the record. And um, one of the questions that I had for him 
and I had the record with me, of course. And one of the questions that I had for him was <laughs> that he covers on the album Sam Cooke's Bring It On Home To Me. And it's an incredible version of the song. Um, and I was curious because uh, Bobby Womack was Sam Cooke's protege and kind of a father figure. You know, Sam discovered Bobby and nurtured him, and Bobby was Sam's guitar player when he went on tour and stuff. And because Bobby produced this record, I had asked Wilson if, uh, if it was his idea, if it was Bobby's idea to have him cover that song, or if it was Pickett's idea, if it was a song that, that, that Pickett really wanted to do himself. And the response I got from Pickett was pretty surprising, which was, I've never recorded that song. And oh. I, like, I didn't know how to respond because he had recorded the song. I was holding the record in my hand. And what, like, what do you do? You know, like, what, like, it, it's, it's one of those moments where it's like, I, uh, so as, you know, politely and, and, and softly as I could, I was like, oh, no, no. I mean, you know, you, d you, d you definitely sign, you know, like, here's the record. Like, it's, you know, here it is. That's not what you do. <laughs> I, yes. In hindsight, that is not what you do. <laughs> and it, it, triggered something in him man like i don't know if it was just this like punk ass little kid questioning him at all or whatever it was but um yeah he he kind of leapt to his feet and you know don't tell me what i did or didn't sing if, if that song's on the record then maybe they caught me singing it in the toilet and recorded it and put it out without me knowing like all right um and uh, it 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 got ugly pretty quick is he calmed down, you know, pretty quickly too. He's a volatile guy, which I had heard from everyone I knew who dealt with him. Um, and his, his manager at the time, you know, was, was able to calm it down. We had a perfectly, you know, wonderful discussion after that. And um, the best part about that, that meeting was actually after he and I were done talking and um, he had, he, you know, got up, the interview was over and he had asked his manager when the limo was showing up to drive them to the gig. And the manager's like, well, there's, there's no limo, Wilson. Um, oh. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And he starts getting agitated again. And he, and he walks like out of the main room that we were in in the suite, like into, I guess, his bedroom area. And they still having this discussion. And guys explain like you know wilson like the the gig is across the street like it would take us longer to drive there and to just cross sunset boulevard in traffic in a limousine you know it's literally across we're just going to walk over you know straight to the house of blues straight in the green room and wilson comes out of his bedroom with a woman on each arm and says but i have to take the limo i've got ladies <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah yeah it's about the entrance it's not a, it's not about the distance it's, it's also, it's, yeah it's like I'm not, I'm not making my ladies walk across sunset boulevard it, that's a gentleman right there that's a gentleman <laughs> exactly. um what what's what's a um what's a what's a band or an artist that you think i like that you hate oh we've talked about this right like did pink we floyd. <laughs> really you hate pink floyd <laughs> You and I have had conversations going back a decade of like you try like you saying like I got to think of like which songs to give you um, to get into it. 
I think uh, that I must have. I think I'm blocking that because I'm. It's funny you say Pink Floyd. But there's two reasons why it's funny you say that. Maybe, maybe I was subconsciously remembering this. One is that I've been in a Pink Floyd mood lately because I, I tend to get that way in the fall. But the other is um, with your your favorite album covers um, article. Um, mm-hmm. I just I I you know I can't make my own favorite album covers list without putting Dark Side of the Moon on it. Um, so. So and I a, seem to recall, maybe you told me you feel that that's fraudulent. Did you? Did we have that conversation? Do you hate that album cover? I don't hate that album cover. Um, I the reason that that album cover sticks out to me, it's always included on those lists of the greatest album covers of all time. And there are. By the way, I'm that, nothing if not master of the obvious, so that's okay. <laughs> well, and, and my my beef with it is not that it's an obvious choice. My beef with it is, and, and I tried to address this in the article in terms of that there were, there, were, there were two big rules that I had to set for myself in order to do that article and not drive myself insane with anxiety. One of them was to just make it personal favorites, to like not try to be definitive and not get into sort of a, an academic discussion of why it's important or, you know, what its impact on culture was. And you know, to kind of stick to personal favorites, like just these are things that I dig. But the other thing was to stick to album covers that like were inseparable from the music or, or enhanced it or clarified the intent of the record. Like those are the things I love the most. And certainly, you know, on the occasions I get to design a record, that's that's always my dream is like to make a package something that makes the intent of the record or the mood of the record clear. And with Dark Side of the Moon, to take nothing away from the, 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 the cover, I'm, no, I'm nothing against it. I just always wonder with that cover um, or some of the others that always get tossed up in that vein, is, is the cover awesome? Or is the album awesome and the album had such massive cultural impact that you can't separate the two? So Dark Side of the Moon becomes iconic because Dark Side of the Moon, the album is so iconic. And so the cover is fused to it emotionally that when you listen to that album for the first time and the experience that you had with that album, which again, I'm not a fan myself, but I I totally appreciate and understand Uh, and don't argue with the impact that it had on obviously so many people. And is it possible to separate the two? Like if I try to look at that album cover in a vacuum, again, nothing wrong with it, but it just doesn't strike me as one of the best album covers ever done. It just happens to belong to an album that's revered at that level. Then it becomes an intellectual sort of debate to me and you know, I, I got to tell you, like, I happen to find, and I like this album, but I happen to, another cover that gets sort of tossed up there all the time, you know, is, is Revolver. And it's like, I, I get it, but, you know, and I get that it was groundbreaking, but I also just, I always thought it was an ugly thing to look at. Yeah. The illustration's ugly to me. It's cluttered. It's, it's kind of a blurry mess, you know, where the photos are collaged in. And it's the same thing. Like I get that it's sort of inseparable from the experience of revolver, but I don't love any of their album covers actually, except Abbey road and let it be. 
Really? I mean, it's, it's yeah. interesting. I, I, I'm more sort of interested in, in Let It Be. Like, what, what about that cover makes you love it, uh, you know? Yeah, I... Seems like I don't think because I don't think it could have been anything else. I think I look at that album cover and it's just maybe it's maybe it's your Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon argument, but I feel like that album completely matches the, the they they're they're paired perfectly. I can't mm-hmm. imagine what else you would have done. I guess the White Album's like that. I just I don't know that it feels a little gimmicky to me. It feels like it was like the, it reflects a complete inability to have consensus on anything else, <laughs> which is sort of, which I guess also reflects the content. <laughs> also that thing, right, where it's like the White Album matters because it was the first time anyone did that, right? Like it just subverted the whole concept of an album cover, and so that's you know that's where you get points for it. But yeah, it's it, it's definitely a debate as to whether it was you know inspired or lazy i don't know what the actual answer is yeah 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 i i I like i enjoyed a lot about that piece because you know they're they're good jumping off points for lots of debates and arguments but i really um i hadn't contemplated um the cover of ascension quite the Uh, same way you did and now i can't shake it like after having it pointed out to me um sort of the semiotics of that album cover i can't really look at it the same so that's that's a testament to what you had to say and let's be honest about this i think that was the intent i have no idea i mean i you know i've not read an interview with the designer uh that that that's what he was going for or I've, i've not read an interview or or a story about train in which that's you know i i it could just be one of those, you know, like like Dylan lyrics where you just read into them what, you know, what you want to see. But, but you know, what's interesting about that, in an era where so much jazz album art and packaging was sort of not throwaway, but not integral to the artist's statement, right? It was like somebody else within the label was dealing with the photography and the yeah. layout. And, like, it, yeah. seems so, it seems so intentional. It definitely feels that way, and it, it looks nothing else like the other impulse covers you know by train or anyone else but that point that you're making about you know the the intent of the artwork versus the musicians and the artists like that's one of the things that i kind of find so fascinating about blue note and you know i i intentionally didn't include i included a blue note cover but it's a very kind of atypical blue note cover um i i included jackie's bag really just because I ripped that design off so many times. And it doesn't look like anything really much else that Reed Miles did. But with the Reed Miles stuff in Blue Note, it's an interesting thing because obviously his stuff was gorgeous and it was groundbreaking. And his use of typography and photography and tinting and all that stuff, I mean, it's inseparable, right? Like you stop someone on the street who has never bought a jazz record and they would associate in their minds jazz with that aesthetic, right? It's, it's just, yeah. it can't be undone. It's been imitated and perpetuated and it's, it's, it's so completely part of the aesthetic. But to your point, it was a Reed Miles Blue Note aesthetic and it, it didn't necessarily change based on the vibe of the record. You know, it was like, well, this is what a Blue Note album looks like. And Blue Note had a, a, a certain sound to a certain extent. But it's it's kind of a fascinating thing that that 
it would be label driven. Everything this label puts out is going to have this certain look and feel to it. And there were definitely like, you know, Reed Miles would would have these subtle visual puns, like maybe off of the album's title, and he would do things to sort of, you know, represent the title visually in in sly ways. But yeah, I mean, there there definitely isn't this sort of the degree to which again like what what i would aspire to in the records that the record covers that 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 i think are the most brilliant are the ones where like i said it's just totally inseparable from the music and i don't mean again i'm not talking about the association that eventually gets piled on it after the record succeeds but that you could look at the cover like the earth wind and fire spirit covers perfect for me for that reason is it like that cover looks like the music and that cover looks different than other covers from that moment and even from that band it just looks like this is the moment they're in right now and this makes a, a really specific statement about where this band is trying to go and what makes them different from other artists of the moment and i can't say that about i can't say that about 90 percent of the blue note records you know yeah like right like right. this does not show me where Hank Mobley was as an artist at this moment in his career. It just shows me that he was signed to Blue Note. The Earth, Wind, and Fire albums with like the all the sort of Afrofuturist Egyptian iconography, like it, it has nothing to do with the <laughs> with with the hits that were on those records. I love the the bizarreness of the Earth, Wind, and Fire universe. Because it was never as weird as like P-Funk or anything like that, but it was not, you know, they, those are weird fucking album covers. I, I would argue, though, that if you dig into those records, that when you listen to, I'm imagining you're talking about albums like I Am, that have the, like the, the pyramids and the, the, the <laughs> columns and, and all that, you know, and all the hydro, you know, um, hieroglyphics and such, but that's kind of what's cool about I'm, I'm a huge huge earth wind and fire fan and what i find remarkable about them and what i think has been lost in when people talk about earth wind and fire because you know now they're sort of a greatest hits like fun good time summer shed band they kind of get dismissed as like a you know a great fun disco band but if you go and listen to those albums, listen in, in their entirety, meaning not just the hits, but the deep album cuts and the weird little like interludes. And what I think those covers were getting at that, that works for me is, you know, Maurice White's playing a kalimba, you know, on, right. on these tracks. And there's heavy Brazilian influence and there's heavy weirdo jazz influence. You know, all those records, again, like up to a certain point because the it's band. like cool in the gang that way they had the best of both worlds for a while they they lived right at that sort of fulcrum where they could do both yeah and and you know maurice like he took the jazz stuff real seriously like if you listen to those very the first two earth wind and fire records or the first three if you include the sweet sweet Beck's badass song soundtrack that they did those are weirdo jazz records those are not in any way pop or funk or r&b records like they're just out there weird jazz records in almost the same vein as what guys like Horace Silver were doing in the early 70s. You know, that yeah. sort of like weird, like, what do you call it? Like it's it's that kind of Afro-spiritual sort of, you know, the, the whole like mothership kind of futuristic, you know, Afro-futurist stuff. And 
you know, they, they eventually brought more sort of pop and R&B sensibility in, especially when they're working with Charles Stepney, great producer. So to me, it's like, I, I look at those album covers with all the references to this, like, I, I don't know if the people behind the Black Panther film were looking at Earth, Wind & Fire album covers when they were imagining Wakanda, but there's definitely a connection there. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Like to me, when I listen to those Earth, Wind & Fire records, even though you've got these songs like September, you know, for example, or Serpentine Fire that sound on the surface to be just like straight up, you know, pop funk or pop disco records. When you go deeper into the albums and you listen to again, like, the weird instrumental tracks or the weird interludes, um, the acapella bits, the kalimba solos, the soprano sax solos, whatever it is, that's where it is like, man, that was Maurice's vision is this like universal musical vision where he was pulling from the past and reaching into the future. He was going back to Africa, but embracing, you know, what was happening on pop radio. He was, you know, stretching from Brazil to Japan and that's where I actually find those records quite inspired and, and sort of this perfect moment where like the artist was collaborating so deeply with the album cover designers and illustrators to say like, here's what I want to present. Here's what this record is about. Um, and I would even argue like the, when they get into the phase that I'm not necessarily a fan of when the horns went away and the drum machines came in and they were very sort of synth driven which in, in my mind sort of stripped away the, what was really compelling about Earth, Wind & Fire. But even the album cover, when they did that, looks like a video game. It's like very cold, it's electric, it's, it's flat, it's not hand illustrated. And even that shows the transition. If you just looked at that album cover. Yeah, it's integrated into the album. vision of the whole album. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, oh, this doesn't look like Earth, Wind & Fire. And you know what? You put it on, it's like it doesn't sound like them either. It sounds like this new electric synthesized step into the, you know, into the 80s and, and you know, where music was heading at that moment. And um, it's reflected on the cover. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got to respect that, too, is that, you know, there was no surprise. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I hear you on that because I, I, I'm not sure I can point to a bunch of good examples, but I, I can relate to that feeling of like, wait a minute, this album looks like their other albums, but it doesn't sound anything like their other albums. Um, and I think I can, I can recall that feeling, especially as a young person with not a lot of money to spend on records and to get tricked. And to be like, oh man, I th- no, there was no indicator that this was different. <laughs> well, and, and you're bringing up something. Uh, it, this is this is something that to, it's it's a generational issue. I don't think people have really delved into, but that really matters. That, that you just said, like, music is free now, right? Like, someone drops a new record, and I can jump on my preferred streaming service and give it a listen. And you know, if I love it, great. If I don't. I'll never go back to it, whatever it is. When we had to save up our money to buy a record and it sucked. And like when you're, what you're hitting on when it was an artist that you have an expectation of and you get it and it looks cool and you bring it home and you know, you saved up for this and you waited and time to drop the needle and the record sucks and it was betrayal, right? Like you got mad. (laughs) Like, how, how dare they, they do this to me? And, and it's, it's a feeling I don't think fans now can fully appreciate. Like, you can get mad that, you know, that your favorite artist's new record isn't that great. 
but you don't you didn't invest in it you didn't save for it there's no there's no sense that you wasted your hard-earned money on it and then on top of that um there was also a thing where if the record sucked you still listen to it about 30 times in a row because you spent the money on it you don't have but a few dozen records and it's almost like you keep listening to it until you decide it's okay and so you end up having a begrudging liking or at least a deep familiarity with an album that wasn't very good which i don't think you would do in the modern era that you know you give it maybe one or two listens and if it doesn't move you you're on to one of the other three million albums that are sitting up there on Spotify for you to listen to that you'd rather hear instead. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this with, you know, I, I just did a purge of my, my vinyl collection just to thin it out a bit and get rid of the stuff that I know I'm never going to go back to again. Or if I do, I'm content streaming it. And it was amazing how many albums, you know, that I got to from artists that I absolutely adored and committed to their worst records because I just didn't want to accept they weren't very good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, even even records where again, like the covers drilled in my mind, and it was exactly what you're saying. Like the cover doesn't tell you that it's any different, but then you drop the needle, and it's like, what? Like, what is this person doing here? Yeah. Um, well, the unfair thing about that, though, for for us is that, you know, any artist in really any medium that sticks around long enough is going to do something you don't like, whether because they changed or because they didn't change or because they got stale or, you know, it's, it's uh, the idea that like, listen, it happened to Stevie wonder. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like anybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I do, do got to tell you though, like part of my love of Marvin Gaye as an artist who has made records that I cannot listen to. But um, I became friends with um, his biographer. It's a wonderful, wonderful guy. And again, another kind of mentor of mine. And one of the things that he really changed my thinking around was with certain artists, and Marvin is one of those artists because, you know, when Marvin, towards the end of his career anyway, um, I'm not going to talk about the stuff that he did in, you know, the early 60s that, you know, his Nat King Cole tributes and things that don't really reflect him as an artist. But the stuff he did towards the end of his life where, or like, you know, Sly Stone could be an artist like this, where it's it's not bad because it's pandering. It's bad because it's going into a place that's uncomfortable. It might not even be objectively good music, you know, it's it's not very well written or whatever, but it gives you this insight into him as just as an artist that's kind of fascinating. So it's like, it's not a pleasurable experience to listen to and I would never just put it on when I wanted to hear it, but I'm, I'm glad that I suffered through his Dream of a Lifetime album and heard these like sort of just weird, dark, offensive things on it because the more I learned about him as a human being, even the worst parts of him, that he was just putting this on tape and it's like, wow, like, I'm never going to listen to this again, but I needed to hear this. Like, it, it, it just deepens my appreciation for him as an artist. Whereas, like, I think when Stevie did the stuff, like, where Stevie lost me was when it was like, wow, this just feels more like you're chasing trends than the sort of wild creativity and expression that hooked me into you in the first place. Yeah. So, like, 
I can like I don't really love the album uh, Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants. I was just going to ask you. I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to ask where you come down. Yeah, on. Like, like, and it's funny. It's a record I've gone back to so many times, and especially because you know, uh, Questlove has talked about the record as being one that changed his life, and that he listens to obsessively. You know, and, you know I went back to it again after hearing Questlove talk about it. Yeah, like, but man, he, he's also he's into prog rock. Like it makes sense that he of all the Stevie Wonder albums, that would be the one yeah, you wouldn't awesome. like, and that Questlove would like. So totally. <laughs> and I, I had, but I dove back into it, like on his sort of like he was so passionate about it and this thing that I was listening to with him, and I gave it another shot. Like, okay, well maybe I dismissed it. There's a lot of records I dismissed when I was a kid for stupid reasons, and I got to go back to them and listen to them with mature ears. And um, that was one that I still don't get, but I respect it because the reason I don't like it is just because it's weird. It's too weird for me and it's atonal and it doesn't have kind of what I love about them. And then comparing that to a record like, you know, the Woman in Red soundtrack or something, which I dislike because there's no weirdness on it. There's nothing to me that, that speaks to what I loved about him. So yeah. <laughs> the Woman in Red soundtrack. <laughs> You can't even have those two albums in the same discography, man. That's not even, I don't even know how that happened. But um, but that's but that's kind of my point, right? Is it like one's, one to me anyway, I don't want to speak for Stevie. And by God, like he's Stevie Wonder. I mean, how how dare we even decide, you know, what, what art of his is or isn't worthy. But, you know, the, the way that, that that soundtrack hit me or, you know, half of the In Square Circle album or whatever, but... That, that what's missing there for me is is the adventurousness and the joy and the the sort of you know to me to hear him adopt simpler production techniques same you know same thing with where earth wind and fire lost me right like to hear them go from this beautiful organic synthesis of these incredible artists that made up the band to drum machines and synthesized you know horns and things like that was like well i'm not saying it's objectively bad and i i don't you know, I'm not saying it's not valid music. It's just not what I love. And with, yeah. with when Stevie hit that point, you know, in the mid '80s, it was like, you know, hey, he, you know, he wins. People bought these things in the millions, and you know, we'd all still show up to see him in concert. It's just like Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants is the weirdness I loved about Stevie taken to extremes, and woman in red or, or the parts of in square circle that don't get me are the parts i didn't like about stevie like you are the sunshine of my life taken to extremes right and what's missing That's in fair. between is that like maybe your baby which is like this perfect synthesis of everything great about his you know pop and soul sensibilities mixed with this bonkers level of creative invention where you're like, oh my, like, how do you even make the noise that, that, that is coming out of my speakers? Like, I can't even imagine how this song was performed. That's fascinating to me. And that's, you know, where all the magic came from for me. Yeah, Peak Stevie for me is, and I, it's, again, it's unfair because it could shift probably based on the day. But I go back to Sir Duke so often because that song just works in so many scenarios and you could play it so loud and it's just such a badass riff. Like, and it's, it's such so, a great song. It's like, I can't think of other songs that are as joyous. Yeah. 
it's just it's a great song so much joy and it's like explosive joy and it's 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 everything about it right like the melody the the horns like you're saying you can play his delivery and then his delivery like the fact that he like he turns into a little kid when he's singing it and he's laughing and it's like it and just the fact that he's singing about music he loves you know that he just decided he needed to do this tribute to the jazz that he grew up in and and those man it's also one of those tracks that you know when they were done when they mixed it and they played it back through the monitors, they were just laughing. Like we fucking. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> they're, they're, they're like a handful of records. That, that's one of them where it's like, you listen to it and I, it, and it's like, you, you can't help but picture the, like what it must've been like in the studio. Like, was everyone smiling as much as I am hearing this? Like, well, and was there anybody else in the studio because of the way he recorded at that point? Like, what I mean, I'm, he clearly wasn't playing the horns, but like, he, did he play everything else on that track? Oh, I have to go look at the credits because the interesting thing with Stevie is that like some some of the songs you look at and it's like, yeah, he played everything, and then there's other songs where it's like you can't believe the artist that he assembled, right? right. You'll you'll look at certain Stevie tracks and there's just this incredible gathering of musicians on it. And the, the weird thing is it's almost hard to tell the difference when you listen, which, which songs are which. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's, this, right. that's right. That's right. That's, that's incredible to me. Well, listen, I, I, we, we ran over. I want to be respectful of your time. Hopefully we, we can catch up when, when we, when we get off mic, but um, I have to ask you one other question. Cause it's so hard to, um, it's so hard to tell you anything new about music. And I don't mean about new music. I mean to like, to wow you with any kind of trivia, um, and so I don't know if this is going to do it, but it's something I just learned the other day. Um, did you, do you know what Coen Brothers movie Prince is in? No. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. <laughs> Good. Um, I was watching. No, of course not. I was watching the credits, and actually my 15-year-old son pointed it out. Um, and in the credit. In the cast, it was the symbol. So it was that era of Prince, <laughs> if that helps give a clue at all. He was in Fargo, which makes sense given where it was filmed. Sure. But, but... he, all right, so you remember the scene where um, they kill the state trooper? Yes. And then the, the, the people in the car drive by and see Steve Buscemi dragging the body off. So the other crazy guy goes and chases them down and the car had run off the road and one of the people gets out of the car and is running away and he shoots him. Uh-huh. Prince plays the dead body. So oh he's God. credited as victim in field. <laughs> oh my, well, so this, this I want to know the history of. I like... I need to know how and why. And I also, cause you know, there's some really amazing story about when they shot that scene. Oh. That like somehow just Prince playing a corpse. There's gotta be an amazing backstory about what, what that day of filming was like as a result of, of him being a corpse. I mean, how did they get him into a parka to lay down in the snow? I mean, like, like, you know, what a, knowing what a film set's like, like it, it's amazing. I love everything about just, it. There's no short story about Prince. 
there's like no like little like oh it's just this thing like everything has this meat to it when you talk like all the stories about prince are fascinating so it's like i don't know like, like there's like you could probably make a 90 minute documentary just about prince's work as a corpse in fargo i'm sure of it. yeah the, the, the two things i'm curious about are you know um what does the Venn diagram of the Coen brothers and Prince's life look like? Like how, who, who and how, and like, did he reach out? Clearly he must've known what was going on. He had to have been a, it's like, I can't imagine it, it originated with them. But then the other thing is, I wonder if there's a DVD version of Fargo with a director's commentary where they talk about it. I, I think you've got the next episode of your podcast locked. All right. Um, we have a lot more to talk about. Maybe we'll do it another time because um, I, I have a. I think next time I want to go deep on the controversies with you. We got to talk about the Hall of Fame. We have to talk about the conflict of the concept of guilty pleasures. Um, we got to talk about the gorillas and Bobby Womack. Um, we got to address the fact that after 10 years, I still haven't found a Pink Floyd song to send you that you might like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am happy to dive back in with you. Maybe we can do it with a proper internet connection. Yeah, or maybe uh, maybe what we'll do is we'll have something to look forward to, and we'll agree that we'll do it in per in person, like in my hotel room at the Sunset Marquee. Nice way to bring it back to the beginning. I admire <laughs> that. <laughs> Thank you so much, David Gorman and 1021 Creative. Thanks to Ant Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and wherever you like to get your podcasts from. While you're listening, please leave us a rating and a review. It helps a lot. And please keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you, be safe, and stay in touch. Bye.